0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to another episode of No Script, No Problem on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? I'm your host, Steve Berkowitz. I've been interviewing fascinating and talented people from all walks of life, for the past 20 years as an unscripted television producer and before that as a small-town sports reporter. Each episode, I talk to extraordinary individuals working in documentaries, nonfiction television, true crime, game shows, and much more. If you enjoy No Script No Problem, please subscribe and rate the show. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also find it on Bleave.com and at Bleeve Podcasts. Follow me on Twitter at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Bleed at bleed.com. All right, let's get started today. My guest graduated from Harvard. That's right, the Harvard. She is also a graduate of Columbia Journalism School. She is an Emmy-winning showrunner, producer, and documentary director. She spent five years producing the investigative news magazine show now on PBS. Her most recent directing credits include This Is Paris, which was about Paris Hilton, of course. And right now, the program that is airing on A&E, a a 10 docu-series called Secrets of Playboy. Please welcome... Alexandra Dean. Alex, how are you?
1: Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Yeah, I mean Playboy, the iconic brand, Hugh Hefner, this huge name in cult, not just, you know, not just media, but culture. Tell me a little bit about taking on such a massive project like Secrets of Playboy. What made you want to do it? And how big of a challenge did you see this project going in?
1: You know, I'd never done a series before, so it was a huge challenge. It, it's a big part of why I wanted to do it. I did want to see what a series was like. I probably should have tried to do like two parts or three parts first. <laughs> 10 parts in a year is a little bit bonkers, but you know, it was very exciting from the beginning. Initially, IPC, who I made Paris with, came to me and, with the idea like Playboy, we should look at Playboy, what, what's the women's perspective? But it was a question we didn't have an answer. It was just, okay, let's start calling people uh, from Playboy and see what they think. Could have been a feature doc, could have been three parts, turned into 10 parts because of the conversations I was having with these women. It was the beginning of the pandemic. We were getting into these big, deep, huge conversations, and some of the stuff just you know blew my socks off. Because Playboy right now in 2022 isn't you know a big name. We don't think
0: about Playboy. It's important to kind of remind people just how big of a deal playboy was in the 70s the 80s even kind of into the 90s and then the re-emergence of playboy in 2000s with girls next door and i think those first two episodes you kind of hit on that tell me a little bit about kind of how big of a deal hugh hefner was in in terms of american culture and in terms of, and what playboy means to media and to our culture
1: you know if i if you look back at american history there aren't that many brands that dominate for five decades and playboy did that and more it is like coca-cola and pepsi it's like mickey mouse it's a internationally recognizable brand we don't need to see the name we can see the symbol and we know what it means and it's been exported across the globe It, it means american sexuality you know, a little bit brash, quite free, cheeky. It's defined us in a way abroad. So I think it matters a great deal what it says about us. And I think it matters also who was the architect of that idea of our sexual freedom. Going in, how
0: did you approach the project? And then what do you look at Hefner and Playboy now being done with the project? How did your views change?
1: Well, like you, Steve, you know, the brand did loom pretty large in my childhood. You know, I was a child in the eighties and nineties. And so I remember a lot of the really iconic Playboy stars, you know, from Pam Anderson to Anna Nicole Smith. And they were also dictating a, a look, a style of, you know, what it was to be gorgeous and sexy. I didn't have a critical view of Playboy growing up. I just kind of accepted that was kind of cool. And wouldn't it be nice to have boobs like the girls on Baywatch, you know? That was about as deep as I got. Um, <laughs> and coming into this, I'd just done Paris. And you know, like the Brittany doc, that was a real look at early fame in the 2000s and what we did to women at that time. And we looked closely at her sex tape and how we'd kind of shamed her for that. And she reframed it for me as revenge porn. You know, this was an, a disgruntled boyfriend putting out something without her consent. That made me think deeply about us and sexuality in this culture. Like, I was really shocked at her perspective on that. And I thought, what What else are we missing when it comes to women and sex in America? And that that's one of the reasons that the word Playboy ignited something in me and I, I wanted to go after their story. By the end, I was completely knocked back. I did not realize that this was gonna turn into such a deep, dark, broad ranging uh, exposé in many ways. It really wasn't intended that way. There are many voices in the series. They, they represent many perspectives, but of course the ones that everyone wants to talk about are those who had really traumatic experiences.
0: All right, so let's talk about a couple of those. It certainly was seemed like this endless you know, playhouse and a place of fun, but um, as we hear in your documentary series, uh, playmates uh, like Holly Madison and Sandra Theodore Uh, They claim that some quite horrible things took place behind closed doors. What was it like to talk to people like Holly and Sandra and kind of really get this vision, this world that the average person just didn't see?
1: You know, Steve, originally it was really confusing. I was like making these cold calls to people who've been in Playboy over five decades And they would say something like it was cult-like or, you know, it was great or, you know, it was vicious. And the words were so different and the, the time periods they were talking about were so different. And it was everyone felt so strongly about their position that at first I just couldn't reconcile any of it. And it took me a really long time to kind of reconstruct all these decades of Playboy And why some people had had these really dark experiences and some people had escaped them and some people loved it. It had to do with all the historical forces going on around it. Like, you know, different things happened to the women who walked through those doors in the 70s versus the 80s versus the 90s. And so I've just laid that all out for you as I've kind of excavated it myself.
0: You think that I kind of started to jot down that the the women and then also you talk to security guards and there's some journalists in there that, you know, the, the girls had curfews, people like half had video cameras in there and there was collateral that was held against people, you know, so that they wouldn't go against him. Um, yeah. uh, it started to sound like, as you kind of watch the first two episodes and then you have the big super tease at the end of the first two episodes, it does start to sound very cult-like in yeah. your opinion. <laughs> would we call Playboy, would we call the Playboy Mansion, a cult? if it was around today in 2022?
1: You know, funny. I think we would call it a cult today. Whether you call it a cult in the time period is the meaty question for me. Because I think we all kind of bought into a lot of the assumptions that made Playboy operate culture-wide. And so maybe back then, it was really hard to pick it apart from the general culture, and we wouldn't really call it a cult. Looking back, it's easy to say it was a cult because there was this sort of brainwashing going on. The rules were ridiculous. There was, you know, making a god out of the man that was leading it and allowing him this full control over the women. That all feels very culty, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, it pretty much sounds exactly like a cult. I kept comparing it to The Vow and Keith <laughs> Raniere. And right. I, you know, I was like, yeah, it sounds a lot like what Keith did, you know, with Nexium, which is eerie. You know, and like I said, yeah, it, it, yeah, it, it kind of made my skin crawl. Um, You do make a, a point in the first t- two episodes to provide kind of a other side. Hef was very anti segregation. He had black bunnies, and then he also was pro, you know, sexual liberation. He was a, a pro women in yeah. some ways. Was that how important was that for you to kind of tell this two divergent stories? One that he was. Kind of this monster, but he was also he also did some good things. How important was that for you?
1: Critical. You know what makes this a really interesting doc series for me. You know when I was working on it, was that it was complex. This is not a simple story. It's not. You know Epstein, I felt was kind of he did what it said on the tin. You know if you decided he was a predator, that's what he did. Heff was not like Epstein. He was really out there in the public promoting himself as a progressive icon. If you'd met him, he would have felt like a fatherly figure from every account. He would have you know, had all these awards on the wall from the NAACP and from women's groups. He wore that mantle of being a progressive champion proudly. And if we don't understand that, then we can't understand that people that can be monsters or can be predators are often hiding under a very progressive veneer as well as you know the men that were clearly out there just doing it like an Epstein or a Weinstein
0: show bill cosby you know who is prominent at the yeah. at the mansion and obviously i'm sure you get into that in in future episodes well, we do we do yeah. <laughs> yes yes <all laughs> So, uh, you know, which goes along with some of the very serious allegations of rape and assault and and things like that and heavy drug use.
1: I probably need a few years of therapy at this point, (laughs) maybe even more, you know, you feel like as a journalist, you're kind of working on this stuff and you know you feel terrible for people telling you, but you kind of go right about your day and you, you, you report on a lot of bad stories and it's okay. And then you find yourself like making tea or something and you're smacking that China cup down on the table, particularly hard and you're like, oh, maybe I have some pent up rage here that I should deal with <laughs> that I'm disassociating from. You know I think every journalist who covers trauma probably feels this way, but it's weird and difficult sometimes to deal with. What was the action
0: or the information that shocked you the most?
1: Episode 10 has a couple of bombshells. I won't ruin them for you, but holy shit. I mean, yeah, they've, ugh. You know, I think we dismantle the Hefner edifice piece by piece each episode as we go along, but I think episode 10's revelations just kind of explode at sky high. And yeah, they're the most shocking. I don't want to get into them now, but it will answer all your final lingering questions about you Hefner.
0: That's a good tease. I yeah. mean, I, I like that. You, you did a good job teasing there. Thank you. Um, well, I, can't, I can't discuss those
1: yet. I think it <laughs> would be surprising.
0: <laughs> okay. Um, you know, the, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, Jennifer Sagendorf is a main character who you introduced in the first episode, and she grew up at the mansion pretty much because her dad was – a doctor for Hefner. And my first question was like, who lets
1: their daughter just grow up at the mansion? Steve, it's a good question. What's interesting to me is how many people write to me and ask about the mother. And, you know, anyone who's been through a divorce battle knows if you're the mother in that situation, you don't get to control really where your child goes when they're with your dad. And that's what's happening with Jennifer. She's with her dad and her dad is totally enamored in love with this playboy lifestyle and his focus is there it's not on little jennifer who's like in the bedroom next door you know being babysat by iconic playmates like dorothy stratton Um, she literally is growing up on the grounds not full time she does go back to her mother sometimes but she is also splitting her time uh with with being at the playboy mansion so she gives us this narrator who's a total innocent, a real child, seeing it as a Shangri-La, the way Hef was trying to paint it, this heavenly place, with all these beauties who want to look after her and play her mother. And and then she slowly, as she gets older, realizes the depths of what's going on there, humiliation and depravity for some of these women. And so when she realizes it, we realize it in the first episode, which I think is a, a way in that worked for me because the little girl was such a unusual character at the mansion. And, and and was like my little Virgil going into the forest, you know, leading us in.
0: Because it was treated in such a sitcom like fashion, The Girls Next Door was almost like now looking back on it, we almost should be like, oh God, I can't believe we even treated the Playboy Mansion and Hef like this, I think you called it like this fun grandpa type character. How should we view The Girls Next Door now looking back at it?
1: It's a really interesting question, Steve. I don't think that I've actually articulated an answer yet for that. I look at it like this really interesting evidence of what was really going on there. Because when I'm watching I'm thinking of everything Bridget and Holly have told me about what was going on behind the scenes. And you see it in, with double vision. You see them acting this cute little fantasy sitcom. And then you also see that, like, Holly's expression is really weird in a lot of the scenes and you can see some pain in her eyes when you're looking for it or Bridget's looking like shell-shocked by something and you, you never see it the same way again and you go, what was wrong with us that we didn't see this before?
0: I mean, I'll tell you where my head kept going with a lot of this is we look at The Apprentice very differently now, right? I mean, we do. we, we, oh, we yeah. Yeah, oh, we look yeah. at the, yeah. We in quote unquote reality, tend to really make these characters who are supposed to be real, we make them look, we show the really bright side of who they are. There's a much darker side to a lot of these characters. And is that, while yes, that's our job, right? As producers to create the image that will get the best ratings, that will make the best show. But is there, are we kind of doing some damage? You know, is there something wrong with that. And that's what I kept, you know, I, it got me thinking about the Trump thing and it got me thinking about, you know, making a sitcom out of that really was kind of dangerous and we didn't really know it at the time.
1: Yeah. You know, when you use the word sitcom, it really struck me afresh, this problem. You're you're basically exactly right that the, the reality shows they need to fill a trope and so they kind of backfill these existing characters with real people, sort of smush that person into this character we like and enjoy seeing. And, you know, Paris would tell me about being cast for The Simple Life, and they would tell her, you know, we're looking for like, you, you, I can't remember, Green Acres or something. They had a really specific idea of what they were doing, and they were smushing her into that character, and they would say, act dumb, do this, do that. It couldn't be further from the truth in many ways of the life she was living in the time. So like, are we seeing some damage? Yes, unless the viewers can understand that they're seeing something scripted, basically. That's
0: a great point. Because if they understand that these people are playing a character, a version of themselves, right? Then it's okay. But I think some of these that we think are reality shows that we kind of gloss over who these people really are. And that's the line that is a little dangerous.
1: Well, and you want to go even deeper, Steve. I don't know if you want to go deeper, but there's a bigger problem because reality and documentary are actually categorized together in many ways as unscripted. You know, real screen does us together in the, the trades and whatnot. Sure. And the problem with that is when you bring reality TV expectations to dock, it can be it can be very dangerous because you, you're putting these huge teams with all this money, making really glossy looking stuff, great footage, but they've also got the expectations that you can make real things happen on camera in a tiny amount of time and, and you can't. And so what they're really pressuring you to do is move doc into reality, script something, make something happen. You know, and a doc filmmaker is allergic to that. We do the opposite of that. We want something to happen spontaneously. And so there's an internal conflict than in our in, unscripted world.
0: Yeah, and there's a desire for it to be authentic, but sometimes authentic is boring. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. like yeah, you know, which is very boring. Yeah, sometimes which authentic, not, yeah. you know, yeah, uh, which is where why you end up with something that feels very produced. Yeah, you know, or or sometimes, which is where we kind of started this. Authentic is bad. Is bad behavior. And that's why you gloss it over and you make it seem like it's happy town. Like everything is, is gold. Um, And then, you know, we, we, we realize 20 years later that everything wasn't so happy. Everything wasn't so funny and all smiles.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. And also I think for me as a doc director being you know, feeling the pressure recently to make, you know, that our dogs have to be more and more beautiful and, and feel more and more produced. I think that I responded to that by becoming more and more psychological as a, as a doc director, because while something might not happen spontaneously in front of you in camera, what often can happen in a short time frame is a psychological insight. You know, it's, it's telling the interior story. And so then that's what I started to do, you know, with Paris and with, Play- with, with Playboy. I really went for that insight that there was something different between the exterior and the interior.
0: I did notice that Kendra Wilkinson did not speak in the first two episodes. Is there any special reason why Kendra did not take part? Or will we see her later on in the
1: series? No, Kendra did not want to take part. I don't entirely know why. We did want to hear every perspective, and we, as you can tell in the doc, we did go out to her several times. I think Kendra, she's very defensive of Hef. She's somebody who, you know, I don't think the wool was ever pulled over Kendra's eyes, to be honest. I think there was a promise that Holly saw there that Kendra never saw in her time with Hef. I think Kendra was extremely hard-nosed and practical and saw the mansion for what it was. And so she looks at some of her compatriots and says, why didn't you all feel that way? But that's you know, just not how everybody experiences things. Some people believe the promise or what others would call the bullshit and others don't.
0: So that's really interesting because when you hear Holly talk, you can clearly see that there was someone who'd quote unquote, and this goes back to the cult thing, drank the Kool-Aid. Yeah. And kind of really dove in headfirst wanted the lifestyle, wanted to live there, wanted to be a part of that. In the people that you spoke with, did you find others who saw the mansion and saw Hef for kind of who he was and were like, okay, I'm going to game this system or I'm going to kind of get what I need and get out?
1: I did. I, I, I saw many more people who were able to game the system later on in Hef's tenure. The older he got, the more obvious the game became. But- What was astonishing was how many people, when they were younger, thought they could come to Playboy and maybe game the system. And they actually got crushed by it because it used to be a lot more powerful back in the seventies and eighties. And it was also a little bit more sinister because the experimentation going on there was a little bit out of control.
0: As I was watching, I was kind of thinking about some of the other docs with, you know, sexual allegations like R. Kelly, Epstein, You know, the docs like that, those were, you know, there was a lot of legal aspects to those docs that you could base it on. R. Kelly had been on, uh, had been on trial. Epstein's case had, you know, had had already gone through and then there was, you know, the perversion of justice. So there was a lot to go on from a court angle. You didn't really have that to work with. What was kind of the starting point for you at the beginning of the doc process?
1: You know, it was really, as simple as picking up a phone and making a phone call. I was, I didn't really have any expectations. I, I just thought surely women will have a different story than what we've heard so far. And at first, you know, I had a lot of phone calls where women were just saying, yeah, it was great. I, uh, You know, people condemned me for taking my clothes off, but it felt freeing and, and I made a brand for myself and it was great. And, you know, I was like, okay, fabulous. We'll talk about self-empowerment and it'll be like an episode. And then, you know, I started to stumble on these interviews that were like, you know, no, I, you know, I think, I think playboy destroyed my life. And when you get an interview like that, you go, and how can both be true and are there others? And down, you go down the rabbit hole. So it really was just literally shoe leather investigating and a a discovery after a discovery.
0: Was there a moment that you realized, okay, this is going to be not just maybe a two hour doc, but I've got something much bigger here. Was was there like an an interview or some sort of discovery that you made?
1: Yeah. Okay. I'm going to tell you something a little bit tantalizing. Um, I discovered a person who literally broke down everything that I was going to discover over the next six months. She told me it all, like big picture, like four or five days into doing the research and blew my mind. And then I... You know, then she disappeared and I didn't really believe her. But I had this version of events that she'd posited and put out there and said, like, prove me wrong, basically. And I went out there to to sort of prove her right or wrong. And it was like this phantom that I was chasing for six months to try and fill in those holes and see if she was right. And piece by piece, the holes filled in and it turned out she was right. But she would never go on camera. She wouldn't even come close to going on camera. Is that frustrating? so frustrating. I can't tell you how frustrating. And I do think if she'd done it, it would have elevated the middle of it to this other level because she was from an era that none of the other women are from. Mm. She had things to say that none of the other women said. To your cult question, I think she was the person who most excavated the cult for us and took it apart in pieces. Mm. So I will forever miss that interview. But you you have to go on. You have to move on. You have yeah. to do your best anyway.
0: Now you have me wondering who this person is.
1: (laughs) Sorry, I told you it was tantalizing.
0: It was very tantalizing. How mind-blowing is it to hear this guy who was an American icon, now you're hearing, okay, this wasn't just a guy who women adored him and he was, you know, every guy's, you know, thought he was the coolest. This guy was raping women. Like how mind-blowing was that for you as you start to hear not just one story, but two stories and three stories over and over?
1: Yeah. Um I didn't believe it at first. I didn't believe it at first. I did not want to report something that was not true there and I I needed to hear it from a lot of sources and from a big time frame before I really started to take it deadly seriously and and think about taking it to air. You don't make allegations like that lightly about an icon like Hef. I didn't just want to throw grenades and Everything you see in this series has, you know, you might feel like it's said lightly. It's been grilled and tested, and there are multiple sources behind it. And anything that didn't pass that test was swiftly taken out by the lawyers. So everything you see and hear there is corroborated and corroborated. And yeah, it blows my mind when I think about the depth of what I know, way beyond what you see in this series.
0: Did you get pushback from whether it's like Heff's family or the Playboy kind of brand? Or was there any obstacles that you faced because you're taking on such a huge and kind of controversial topic?
1: The people who are most upset with me from the beginning until now are, you know, some of the women I invited to tell me the stories who had a really good experience. And they just really don't think it's right for me to include these stories from women who didn't have a good experience. They think the women... Are maybe lying or inflating the truth or looking for fame or money. I I understand that. I understand if you had a really positive experience. It's really hard to understand that these women didn't. But I also it it, it drives me a little crazy that women cannot imagine that that someone else would do this because it's a truth that they have to unburden themselves from because. We're not paying anyone. We paid no one for their stories here. We're allowed to pay little archive fees for people's photos. But that's it. Like nothing, nothing that would actually make you come and tell your worst stories on television. We're asking them to do something that's often triggering and re traumatizing them. You know, you don't do that lightly. You don't, it's not easy for anybody. Women do that because there's something serious they need to unburden themselves of psychologically.
0: In the age of social media now, do you think something like this could ever happen? Well, you have to watch episode
1: nine because (laughs) that (laughs) episode nine is about how the the mansion thing went out into Hollywood and got replicated and replicated and replicated. And what happened to those girls where the whole system of churn and burn was, was having a much more rapid clip. So I think the truth is what happened at the mansion became part of the fabric of Hollywood. It became part of the casting couch. And I think a lot of young women still arrive in LA every day who are drawn in by people promising the modeling contracts or whatever, and just using that same format, probably the offspring of what we saw. It's interesting
0: because, you know, Playboy was always seen as kind of the higher brow of the okay. adult magazines. Yeah. You know, it had articles <laughs> that were thought provoking.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: Um, it wasn't, and, and, it wasn't
1: just a joke. The writers were extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: It was it was a higher brand, higher caliber, and he was, you know, he was an important figure in in our culture. And I'm curious what you think after seeing everything, even stuff that obviously won't appear in the ten part docu series. What is the legacy of Playboy? What is the legacy of Hugh Hefner?
1: You know, I'm a big fan of complex ideas and i really want to challenge all of these viewers and listeners to hold both versions in their minds you know you can can both be playboy that liberated women to take off their clothes in a puritanical society and feel a little bit more free to enjoy themselves and playboy can also be a place where women got crushed and um you know really it was all for the entertainment of men and both can be true, so I think the legacy is now complicated. It's muddied, it's conflicted and difficult, and I think that will make us a little more, bit more careful. You know, when we follow the next Pied Piper of American sexuality off a cliff. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I hope we don't follow anyone
1: <laughs> off
0: any cliff, but yes, I think. Uh, yeah, you know, and I, I'm
1: just joking. I do.
0: I, I agree you with you. Know,
1: there'll be someone someone else who oh, talk yeah. about what sexual freedom is. And some of it might be great. And some of it might be truly terrible. And we have to be willing to acknowledge that good and terrible things can be wrapped up in the same package.
0: Looking at kind of the projects that you've done, And then now kind of looking ahead, what is it that excites you about storytelling from This is Paris to Secrets of Playboy and then looking ahead? What is it that you're excited about as a storyteller?
1: I remain deeply excited by any story where I think we made an assumption collectively as a culture. And we judged somebody or something. We made a big judgment and felt superior. I, I quite like stories like that where I can go in and be like, really? Really? Do you still, like, if you look a little closer, are you really superior? Why did you judge? And it makes people just look at other humans with that a little bit more humanity and empathy. I like those stories.
0: I like those as well. But here's a question for you. Do you feel like we should be playing Monday morning quarterback and looking back 10 years on people's tweets or 15 years on people's Instagram posts when they were teenagers per se and judging them on that.
1: Yeah, that's a really tough one. I don't. don't. And I, and actually, I think for me, the empathy thing, the, the increasing human empathy thing, For this generation, which is very quick to judge, I think it's a little different. It's the other way around. It's like, I hope that what the dogs say in 10 years are like that instant of that person writing that tweet should not have defined the next 10 years of their life. That will be the tragedy of the next wave of dogs. They should have been allowed to grow and develop and be forgiven and apologize. I believe in apology. I believe in forgiveness. You know, human empathy is about putting yourself in that other person's shoes. And so, yeah, I look forward to those docs that make us stop, stop being so vicious online.
0: Docs are as popular now as they ever have been and they're more prominent and prevalent than they ever have been. Uh, just this past week, you know, at Sundance, Fire of Love sells for seven figures. And yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a great time. For people like yourself, a documentary filmmaker, how exciting is it to be a documentary filmmaker right now? And why do you think that docs are so
1: popular? Docs are getting bigger budgets than they've ever had. So we can make them look better, sound better, you know, more entertaining, more in depth, bigger teams. We're getting the resources that were only ever given to features before. And so, of course, the palette is more gorgeous. The hues are more varied. It's a completely different medium. We used to just associate Doc with something in a small television screen on PBS and it would have a certain pace and probably sound like Ken Burns. And that was fabulous. I love Ken Burns. But it was not the many, many huge thing that it is today. And I don't think that Doc is going away because we've realized now, why not give it this great big, gorgeous palette and enjoy it in you know, all of its faces.
0: I wanted to ask you about this is Paris. What were your preconceived notions going into this is Paris? And then after being done, you know, how how radically have, you know, have you kind of changed?
1: Well, I think we've already established I was a pretty dumb teenager and <laughs> I like Baywatch. And I also definitely read In Touch magazine and went and got my nails done. And I saw Paris Hilton, you know, on every single newsstand growing up. I grew up in England, so it was a little different. It was also Princess Di, and, but it was like Princess Di and Paris Hilton, like what the hell, in England, growing up. So I was fascinated to talk to her. It had never really resolved for me how this heiress had gotten so much airtime and been on every magazine com- cover. So I wanted to resolve that. I was really drawn in by that. She had seen my doc called Bombshell about Hedy Lamar. And she had felt a kinship with Hedy Lamarr this thirties actress who was condemned for doing the first organ on screen and everyone had judged and, and not understood. And she, you know, Hetty had turned out to be this genius who had, who had discovered a way to communicate, which was secure, which would become the basis for find Bluetooth and GPS today. So when I first met Paris Hilton, she was basically saying that she was a hidden genius, uh, you know, through this comparison with Hetty Lamar, and I was intrigued. I was uh, maybe a little skeptical. And you know, I think your follow-up question might be, was Paracelan a genius? And there were certainly some snarky articles written about me in that vein. But yes, in a, in a, in a very different way, unrecognizable in, for some people, but in a very different way, she is a genius. I have never seen a business mind like hers. She has an enormous business empire that she runs almost single-handedly. And at lightning speed, and she has a huge number of brands. And she she has a real sense for how to make money. But she's also somebody who has a hidden face. And she's never really shared who she really was. So, you know, she was absolutely spot on. She's a lot like Hedy Lamar. And having just done that film, it gave me a lot of insight for how to crack open Paris Hilton. She's a marketing genius, if oh, yes. anything. Exactly. Thank you. She's a marketing genius. Yeah. And, you know, so much of selling a perfume or selling a shoe, you know, is is marketing. And she has like a billion perfume brands and stuff. So it's incredible what she does.
0: And in your doc, This Is Paris, she reveals some abuse that she suffered that she had never talked about previously. What was that like to kind of be the conduit? You know to exposing something that nobody knew
1: about you know it's really weird i was like particularly well matched for that doc in a way that i don't think either i knew or paris knew when i signed on my own sister had gone through something similar she would actually been institutionalized as a kid um, in a psychiatric ward but it wasn't unlike what paris had gone through in these terrible schools where she was abused and i recognized these signs of abuse and trauma like i understood this person, everything about us was here because of my sister and so I had this like instant recognition, that's what I felt like I, I recognized it all, I know this story, I grew up with it, it was the shadow I grew up under, my sister's terrible experience and the secrets of my family so I made that film to work out my own dark background, my own demons and it, and it did help me
0: that's great that you're able to kind of channel your creativity into something that helped her helped Paris and it was a tremendous film. And then it actually turned out to be therapeutic yeah. for you.
1: Yeah. yeah. Weirdly therapeutic. It was really weird, but it didn't it just kind of worked out that way. Yeah.
0: I always like when a project that you don't think is quote-unquote perfect match for you ends up being something that you're you end up being the kind of perfect fit that's happened for me as well yeah it's yeah
1: yeah. because things come in search of you you just don't just go in search of them we think of ourselves as only questing forward in life yeah but actually things are coming and meeting us all the time yeah and i think things come and meet you halfway that's a good sign that there's actually a lot more there a lot more matches than maybe you're seeing with the naked eye
0: okay i usually end of the show by recommending something for the listeners to watch. So I just watched The Rescue, Jimmy Chin's documentary about the, the Thai Boy Scouts who were trapped in a cave and they were obviously rescued and it's on uh, Nat Geo. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It is phenomenal. Um, as well as Secrets of Playboy, of course, have you, have you seen anything recently other than Secrets of Playboy that you would, re- obviously, that you would recommend that you would recommend for people?
1: It doesn't have to be a doc.
0: No, it can be yeah. anything.
1: <laughs> yeah. I am obsessed right now with The Great, about Catherine the Great. Oh, it's okay. written by the same guy who did The Favorite. Okay. You saw that with Livia Coleman, got the Oscar for that recently. Yeah. 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 It's freewheeling and crazy, and the writing is insanely good. And it's this fresh, like super X-rated view of history that just makes it all make more sense to me than anything any other staid version has ever you know done before.
0: Okay. All right. One more uh, that just occurred to me, Yellow Jackets yeah, on have- Showtime. Okay. Is a guilty pleasure. If you just want to kind of just kick back, it's scripted. And it is dark, dark comedy. Christina Ricci, just give her the Emmy now. Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's dark, you know, like a soccer team that crash lands in in the wilderness and chaos kind of ensues. Uh, But amazing. Just phenomenal. Um, So that one I definitely. Yeah, watch that one too. All
1: right. Well, if we're allowed to give extras, pen one five as well.
0: Oh, yeah. Pen15. Five?
1: Five? That had me giggling all night.
0: Alex team, thank you for doing the podcast. Um, why don't you tell everybody before you take off, when is Secrets of Playboy on so that everybody will watch?
1: Sure. Secrets of Playboy is on A&E every Monday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, uh, 6 p.m. Pacific, I believe and there's 10 episodes in total. And then afterwards we'll be available for streaming on A&E's website.
0: Okay, great. Well, everybody should watch and congratulations. And I'm excited to see what you do next
1: as well. Thank you very much. Pleasure talking to you, Steve.
0: Likewise. That's gonna do it for another episode of No Script No Problem. For everybody listening, please remember to subscribe, download, and rate the show with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also find it at Believe.com and at Believe Podcasts. Follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. Email me any questions you have. No script, no problem podcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact believe at believe.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem. Thank you for listening to Believe.